This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this one is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strived for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving five-star review, multiple even, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for the podcast are in the show notes. So, Isaac the First Komnenos has taken ill. Just when things might have been looking up for the Empire, after a long drought of solid leadership, what's to happen at this point? Will Isaac survive? Well, if you're a betting person, then no. No, he won't. But never say never, right? I mean, it's Isaac Komnenos, for God's sakes. He's the crusty old general who is acting as imperial savior at the moment. Surely the fates wouldn't do such a heinous thing as to kill off the one person intent on righting the wrongs of the previous 30 years, would they? Today, episode 105 is entitled Machiavellian Moves. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Michael Sellis walked into the hunting lodge, Emperor Isaac I Komnenos had built just outside of Constantinople, he saw the proud old man sweating profusely under blankets, huddled up in bed. Sellis, being a learned man himself, was also a qualified physician, and seeing Isaac in such a state, he rushed over and checked the man's pulse. His initial reaction wasn't great. At that moment, the doctor came in, probably with more water, and saw Celis standing there. When he inquired about Celis's presence, Celis answered the man's question with another question. He must have asked about the emperor's high fever and rushing heartbeat. The physician, in an air that smelled of quote-unquote overconfidence, according to Celis, the physician announced that the fever would pass and the emperor would be out hunting in no time. Celis wasn't so sure, but he trusted the doctor, and Celis was proved wrong. In a matter of a few days, Isaac was fever-free and back on his feet. However, to quote John Carr in his book, The Komneni Dynasty, quote, 
The doctor was right, though as soon as Isaac began to eat solid food, a worse fever racked his body, end quote. Isaac was quickly rushed to the Bakrani Palace, which was a smaller imperial home nearby, quote, where he began to recover, joking and bantering into the night, end quote. Unfortunately, the very next morning, Isaac was found back in bed again, only with actual pain this time. Celis looked down at the old crusty general, and he could almost see it in the man's eyes. He took the emperor's hand and in Carr's words, quote, observe the arrhythmically pulsating wrist artery and quietly decided that the end was near, end quote. Within minutes, many gathered around Isaac's bed. His wife, his daughter, Maria, his brother John and his nephew, presumably young Alexius, all stood by watching the man suffer. They begged him to be transported back to the great palace where he could have more security from prying eyes, not to mention a little peace. He abruptly stood up and wobbled his way to the door before finding his horse and riding himself to the great palace. The old crusty general was still in there. He eventually found himself in his own bed and just outside the doors in the traditional Greek way, his wife and other women sang mournful songs, their sobs and wails of anguish echoed through the halls. So much for peace, I suppose. Now everyone, including Isaac, believing the end was, was near, witnessed a scene that must have been quite strange indeed. The reluctant emperor asked to be admitted into the church as a monk. Carr writes, quote, What followed was a most unseemly scene. Ekaterina, the Augusta, Isaac's wife, remember, Ekaterina suddenly stopped grieving and turned to Celos. Quote, what a fine way to show your gratitude, philosopher, she snapped, by planning to convert your emperor to the life of a monk. Celis at once vigorously denied ever having had such an intention and turned to the emperor to ask him who, if anyone, had advised him to retire to holy orders. Isaac replied weakly, but probably truthfully, that it had been his own decision, and here he must have gestured to his wife. This lady, he said, true to her womanly instincts, blames everyone else for a suggestion I make myself. End quote. And it was at this incredibly dramatic point that Ekaterina laid bare the awful truth of what Isaac was suggesting. This was recorded by Michael Sellis, remember, who was eyewitness to the whole scene. And even Carr suggests that there's no valid reason to doubt his testimony. So, taking Sellis for face value, Ekaterina spat a slew of vitriol toward her husband for the mere suggestion of giving up the imperial crown and taking monastic orders. The one thing, she points out, that Isaac hadn't thought about was his family. According to Celos, Ekaterina lays out what this means for her, as he has God's grace vindicate him from all past wrongs, wrongdoings. Quote, I take on my shoulders, again, this is Ekaterina speaking, I take on my shoulders all the sins you ever committed. I will answer for the wrongs you have done. The deepest darkness can cover me. The outer fire can burn every bit of me. I would welcome it. And you, have you no pity now for us in, this des in our desolation? 
What sort of feeling have you to take away yourself from the palace and leave me behind, condemned to a widowhood full of sorrow, and your daughter a wretched orphan? Hands, maybe not even friendly hands, will carry us to faraway places of exile. They may decide on some worse fate. It may seem, excuse me, it may be some pitiless fellow will shed the blood of your dear ones. No doubt you will live on after you enter the church, or perhaps will die nobly. But what will be left for us? A life worse than death. End quote. Yeah, she kind of went off on the old man. And in my estimation, rightly so. However, these were different times, times when the role of a husband wasn't necessarily the same as they are today. I mean, I get it. Many men today feel they are only loosely tied to their wife and children. And that in and of itself is a tragedy with terrible rippling effects across society. I myself am a child of a runaway father. But today's society at the very least recognizes the issue and largely seeks to remedy it. However, in centuries past, let alone a thousand years ago, the role of the husband was seen quite differently. And here, you add the power of an emperor to the mix, and the husband could do what he wished with a fairly free conscience. So what? Isaac went into the order. To the public, it would seem a noble gesture, but who's looking out for the wife and kids? Again, today, society has set up a court system to help, among other things, and yes, I do acknowledge that the court system has absolutely been weaponized against men in many cases in divorce. But that obviously wasn't always the case, though. I think it's a valuable question to ask in this case. And yes, I personally find this rather minor incident in history quite interesting, which is why I'm dragging it out a bit here. I think it's something to chew on, something history classes just gloss right over. What is the human impact of the choices of our leaders throughout history? All things considered, historical impact is human impact, but not all human impact is historical impact. And that, to me, is some of the more interesting parts of history. It reminds me of some things we've already discussed on the podcast, such as the human impact of the quarrel between Earl Godwin and King Edward II back in England, resulting in Edward's wife slash Godwin's daughter being sent to a nunnery, essentially exiled for a spell, for her husband's beefing with her dad. Or the human impact felt across England when Duke William decided to invade, resulting, among so many other things, in vast swathes displaced of displaced Englishmen, many having lost their entire families due to war, famine, and disease, let alone their livelihoods and their property, moving, these people moving to Constantinople, finding themselves across the battlefield from Normans led by Robert Giscard. Yeah, we'll get to that in a matter of episodes. Or the psychological warfare used by the mere rumor of Norman Roger de Tosny eating Muslims in Iberia, allowing him to storm into battle cloaked in, you know, some sort of folkloric shroud of demonic power at his side. I mean, this stuff's everywhere, this, this human impact of historic decisions. So back to Isaac's decision to join the church's monastic order. On the surface, hey, you do you, man. 
You want to join the church and become a man of God, forsaking all your previous choices and associations, and devoting your life exclusively to exalting the entity you believe is at the helm of all creation and will be there to welcome you with open arms upon death? Yeah, on the surface, I could, it's, pretty, it's pretty noble, especially having seen and lived some of the worst and best humanity has to offer, from the battlefield to the emperor's palace. Once again, though, who does your choice leave in its wake? Ekaterina, your strong Bulgarian wife, and Maria, your beautiful strawberry blonde-haired daughter. What about them? Social norms aside, any good man throughout recorded human history has taken those people into just about every decision he made. Say what you want about the flakiness of men when it comes to socially impactful decisions. And believe me, there's quite a bit you could say. But at the end of the day, had the majority of men simply not taken, to their, wife, not taken their wife and children into consideration when making these decisions, society would have collapsed eons ago, if it ever would have taken hold in the first place. If all men were like Isaac Komnenos, families as we know it would never even evolved. But they did, which says something about the vast majority of men. So what's the judgment on Isaac Komnenos then, or men like him? Taking into consideration this time period and the acceptable norms of his day, not ours, how would you still judge him? A big part of this podcast, at least in my own head, is to ask tough questions like this one. I'll leave it up to you to decide. It's none of my business where you stand on it, but it's something official and armchair historians alike should always ask. Objectively speaking, where do I stand on X, Y, and Z? As for me, given the power he wielded, a power only a fraction of a fraction of people throughout history have had the privilege of wielding, I think the man's a dog for his decisions. If anything, though it wouldn't fly today, back then I figure the responsible thing would be to set her up using the very wealth he's about to disavow anyway, and maybe even marry her to a man who would presumably, at the very least, not throw her out on the streets, which is exactly what she's afraid of. I find her argument quite compelling, though Carr calls it, quote, a masterpiece of emotional blackmail, end quote which I quite like, because in this situation, why wouldn't she be entitled to guilt-tripping the heck out of her husband? But as Carr points out, her own future wasn't the only thing she was concerned about. See, back then, and really throughout the Middle Ages, everywhere, was the paramount importance of legacy. A family's legacy and standing into the unforeseeable future was kind of a big deal. Carr writes, quote, and more important, it shows that the fate of the Komneni house and her own family, rather than her husband's life, was uppermost in her mind, end quote. It's an interesting point. Today, with the primacy, at least in, here in the West, with the primacy of individual rights and responsibilities and the, you know, quote-unquote, be present mindset, stemming from, in my own opinion, from the fairly recent Great Awakening interpretation of the Enlightenment era, we tend to focus on our children's and grandchildren's well-being and not so much about our own personal legacies. For us peasants, 
It's more collective rather than individual, unlike those we perceive as the wealthy and political elite who focus on their last names as outright brands. No one's going to remember my last name as stemming from me personally, but people around the world instantly recognize surnames such as Bush, Clinton, Trump, Kennedy, Rothschild, Rockefeller, DuPont, or even Ford. Or from history, you'll see generations of Habsburgs, Medicis, and Borgias, for instance. But last names are a relatively new phenomenon in history. Just a handful of centuries old, really. Before that, familial dynasties, as we know, typically stemmed from a specific patriarch, the man who would put them on the map, so to speak. Queen Matilda, William's wife, was very focused on setting her husband's dynasty up for success by helping to not only create a, you know, a big family, but raise a strong cast of characters that would begin the Norman royal family in England. Behind all of these men was typically a Matilda-esque matriarch, making it all happen. One reason why I titled that string of episodes that focused on Matilda herself as Behind Every Great Man. Now, behind Tancred de Hauteville were two women, actually, who birthed and raised the likes of William Ironarm and Drogo and Humphrey and Robert Guiscard and Roger. Spoiler alert, uh, soon to be Roger I of Sicily. Now, don't forget about the tireless workings of both Emma of Normandy, having given two English kings sons who would one day rule the kingdom, or Godwin's wife, who would take the reins of the family in the wake of Harold's and Tostig's deaths and make a fairly serious, albeit futile, play against William I. History's chock full of all these sorts of ladies, these strong and proud women who sought singular purpose in handling the inner workings of dynasty building. We'll see, we'll see soon enough the likes of Eleanor of Aquitaine who would do the same. This is not going to go away for a while. Ekaterina's singular purpose would be to support her husband's legacy because it's a given that Isaac's wife would be instrumental in, in the legacy's success, in his success, and that history would remember her for her part. It seems like history's forgotten about the women in this regard, but to me, that's only because our educators haven't accepted these women into history and passed them along to the rest of us. I see them, and I hope you do too. I'm not saying all these women were saints and selfless warriors or anything like that, no more than I'd say that about their husbands. But the roles they played are documented. Maybe not in full, sadly. Maybe not explicitly. But we know enough to safely assume a lot. We know enough that we can read between the lines. And based on this, we should acknowledge these, these women. Ekaterina was thinking of her husband's legacy, and therefore the legacy of her children, which was her primary focus. She, like Mrs. Godwin and Mrs. William I and Mrs. Middle Ages wherever, had quite a bit at stake in her husband's success, but she would rest in real peace knowing her children had inherited a life set up better than her own, even her husband's. Any parent out there would understand that. So when Isaac decided to retire from being emperor and become a monk, this must have enraged her, not so much for her own well-being or future, though that was obviously naturally a concern, 
but more because he was abandoning her daughter's future prospects. Maria, in this case, was her chief concern. And by becoming a monk, he was leaving Maria with no real prospects at all. No wonder Ekaterina was railing against Isaac and Michael Sellis. Again, I get it. But none of what she said swayed the old man. His wishes were made clear, and the only thing left for him to do, live or die, was to name a successor. Now, I've mentioned in passing the long-standing relationship the Komneni and Dukas houses enjoyed for the better part of a century, at least, and it would finally come to bloom in this moment. Constantine Dukas is described as, quote, an unassuming man who cared little for display and outward honors, sometimes going about in rough farmer's apparel, says Carr. But this rather humble aristocrat, a man who enjoyed a lifelong membership at the highest, and I mean highest, of Byzantine society, was also the current president of the Byzantine Senate. This alone was worth untold amounts of influence across the empire, but now he was called to the great palace without a clue as to why. In fact, word of Isaac's illness, at least to the severity that it was in that moment, had only spread throughout the palace and hadn't leaked out to the public yet. Carr lays out the scene, as far as Celis recorded it. Quote, when called to the palace, he was seen to be extremely shy and modest, and stood respectfully before the imperial bed. In a brief speech which Celis recorded, Isaac told Constantine Dukas that he had him in mind for the succession for some time hinting that he considered Dukas a more capable man for the throne than his own brother John. Applause mingled with sobs as Isaac stopped speaking. Dukas, overawed by what he had just been appointed to, seems to have uttered not a word in response. End quote. Now from here, Constantine Dukas would indeed assume the role of Eastern Roman Emperor. Isaac I Komnenos would indeed assume the role of monk. By sundown of that very day, he named Dukas as his successor. Though nothing is concretely known of Isaac's death, he was said to have lived on a few more years as a monk at the Studian Monastery on the shores of the Sea of Marmara nearby. As for Isaac's wife and daughter, well, I'm sorry to report at this point I haven't found anything. So the year was 1059, and Michael Sellis, he was still occupying one of the highest spaces of a gargantuan empire short of the emperor. What's more, Michael Sellis just so happened to be BFFs with Constantine Dukas, which made the whole situation a bit sus if you ask me. So the old crusty general turns the entire empire around for the better. Sellis stays at the top of his game somehow, even after he participated in the battle against the new emperor. The new emperor has a couple really, really good years, and just when the empire's in a pretty good place, the emperor gets sick. Not even deathly sick, as we are to find out. But then, after a fever and a tummy ache, Celis pronounces Isaac's end is nigh and the emperor is ready to call it quits. Isaac names his successor the man he was close to, because he was very close to the Dukas family, but the man that Celis just so happens to be besties with. 
And then Isaac recovers and lives on for a few more years. And, and this whole situation was narrated by whom? That's right. Michael Sellis himself. So how much of it is true? Sadly, we'll never know, but that's the way thousand-year-old stories go, right? I do happen to think that Ekaterina's protestations were probably pretty close, but it but was it Isaac that she was really angry at? Or was it someone who had orchestrated quite a bit in recent years? There is a clue in Celis' own writings, too. You'll remember that Ekaterina turned to Celis and asked pointedly what a fine way to show your gratitude philosopher by planning to convert your emperor to the life of a monk. I don't know. Did Celis tip his hand to history there? Do we finally see Celis for who he really was? A case study in Machiavellianism? Regardless, Isaac I Komnenos was out and Constantine uh, Dukas was in. And there's something poetic about these two names as well. This is kind of convoluted, but I, I think there's something there. As I said on an earlier podcast, Isaac Komnenos would usher in the last great dynastic house in Byzantine history. And as good as he did as emperor, he would hardly be known as its greatest. There would be other dynasties, but the Komnenos clan would be its last greatest. And Constantine the Great's empire having split from the western side in the 450s when it fell to King Alaric of the Visigoths, would endure through the year 1453, a thousand years later, when the walls of Constantinople were finally breached once and for all by the Turks. So not only have we in the years 1057 to 1059 seen the first of the last great Roman imperial dynasties, but his successor would be one Constantine away from the Eastern Roman Empire's last emperor. See, Constantine Ducas became Constantine X, and in 1453, Constantine XI would see the fall of one of the greatest empires in human history. This peaceful exchange of power from the Canenos family to the Ducas family, again, seems somewhat poetic. Can't quite put my finger on it but there's something there. I just know it. And the empire was also adjusting to something resembling stability under the very military-like and efficient and disciplined emperor that was Isaac I Komnenos. But now, as Michael Sellis would soon see, Constantine X Dukas was an entirely different sort of leader. Instead of a get-your-hands-dirty type of leader, that they'd enjoyed over the last couple years, they now had a scholar and politician at the helm. Carr points out that Ducas's name itself is a Latin derivative of dux, or where we in English get the word duke, as in Duke William of Normandy. Not only is politics coursing through Constantine X's blood, but it's also written in his very name. And as for the Ducas family, they historically have welcomed military positions over, over the centuries. However, being a man of letters, Constantine never paid that career path any mind. Celis, having always resented, as Carr says, the military's hold over Isaac Komnenos, was all too happy to help Emperor Constantine X to create workarounds to military influence. But there was a major problem with that plan. Carr writes, quote, 
The result was a vast and mushrooming bureaucracy that drank up public funds that should, given the constant threats butting against the empire's borders, have better gone for defense, end quote. And there we have it. Constantinople is right back to where it was in August of 1057, just before Isaac Komnenos was thrust into being emperor. It all started off normally, with the robes being placed over Constantine's stunned shoulders and the, the pretty red, ruby red slippers being placed on his little dainty feet, and the procession to the throne where he sat and enjoyed audience from every senator and aristocrat and bureaucrat and even businessman who was available that day to come and grovel and show their loyalty to the new emperor. It all started off normal. Carr tells us that in a brief moment of privacy between Celis and his bestie Constantine X, Constantine let the tears just fall. What a change of fortune for a man who led the Senate and walked around regularly in a peasant's attire, his nose typically stuck in a book. But when the curtain was drawn back again, he preached justice, mercy, and righteous dealing. But as Carr adds, quote, was it what the empire needed at that juncture? End quote. Well, we'll find out on the next episode. Although seemingly the antithesis of Isaac Komnenos' leadership style, a style that had seemed exactly what the empire needed in that very moment in order to turn itself in the right direction, you know, to, to right the ship. Would Constantine X's leadership style continue? and improve upon the great things already in place by his predecessor? Until next time.